Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This episode of Conversations on Dance is brought to you by Dance Teacher Web Conference and Expo. From innovative movement classes to inspiring seminars, Dance Teacher Web 2022 has more than 140 sessions on an extensive range of dance and business and personal development topics. So whether you are a new teacher, a professional dancer looking to transition into teaching someday, a seasoned studio owner or a school administrator, you can customize a program to meet your professional needs. This conference, catered specifically to dance teachers of all styles, includes business building seminars, marketing trends, and unique studio retention ideas, teacher certification training programs with UNLV, world-class expo hall with 80-plus exhibitors, networking with dance celebrities, and so much more. Register now for the Dance Teacher Web Conference and Expo. August 4th through 7th, 2022 in Las Vegas and go into your classes next year loaded with new class content for all levels and ignite your creative flame with ideas for new choreography and music. We are happy to offer our listeners a special code for $50 off your conference registration when you use code COD50 at checkout. But hurry, this special offer ends May 4th, 2022. Visit danceteachersummerexpo.com for information and to register now or click the link in the description of this episode. Remember, use code COD50 at checkout for $50 off your conference registration. Looking great, whether on stage or off, is important. Menagee Advanced Men's Skin Care is a line of professional skincare products formulated to keep your skin healthy and performance ready. Trusted by professionals who need to maintain healthy skin, Menagee is a must-have for those whose appearance matters. Go to www.menskincare.com, that's menskincare with one S, and use code COD30 to receive 30% savings on all individual products. Your skin will thank you. The Conversations on Dance listener survey is back. 
It's been a few years since we have checked in with our listeners to get your feedback. So we have put together a short list of questions that takes just a couple minutes to complete. By responding to our 10 questions, you will help us get a better understanding of our audience, which we will use to support the podcast in the future and bring you more of the content that you are looking for. We are already receiving really helpful feedback and great listener suggestions, which we will be addressing in an upcoming episode of COD. Thank you for tuning in and being a valuable part of this podcast's future. Click the link in the description of this episode to take our survey now or visit conversationsondancepod.com. I'm Rebecca King Ferraro. And I'm Michael Sean Breeden, and you're listening to Conversations on Dance. Today we are joined by choreographer Kathy Marston. Kathy began choreographing while still at the Royal Ballet School, ultimately leaving life as a professional dancer to pursue choreography full-time. She has carved out a unique identity for herself as a choreographer who dives headfirst into creating full-length narrative works based on beloved literary classics and other pre-existing source material. We talked to Kathy about her creative process in adapting text to steps, her upcoming premiere of Of Mice and Men at the Joffrey Ballet, and her plans for Ballet Zurich, where she will take over as artistic director in the coming year. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Um, you are hard at work at the Joffrey um, on a, an amazing new premiere of Mice and Men coming up. But um, before we get into all of that, we wanted to just get a little bit uh, of a reacquaintance with you for our audience um, uh, and just learn a little bit about how you first became interested in dance and at what point that involved making dances. Okay, looking far back. <laughs> yeah. A while now. <laughs> Gosh, I started dance, uh, I was probably around eight. I, I did do a couple of classes when I was very little, um, but got in a very bad mood when my I wanted ribbons that would go all the way up my legs to my thighs. And <laughs> my mum actually sewed them on these shoes for me, but of course they fell down and I got so mad about it that I uh, go back. So then I began tap dancing because um, I was a big fan of movie musicals when I was eight mm -hmm. or nine. Mm -hmm. And I, I began with tap and loved it. And then the teacher slowly convinced me to go on to ballet classes as well. And I did jazz and, you know, all of the different things. Um, and then when I was 16, I went to the Royal Ballet School, the upper school. And at that point, you could choose to choreograph. There was a choreographic course and, and you kind of had to either be in someone's choreography or make your own piece. Mm. Um, and I had actually done the Royal Ballet Summer School um, just before. And on the summer school, three of the upper school students choreographed on the summer school students. And I absolutely loved it. It was so much fun. And actually, one of them was Chris Hampson, who's now director in Scottish Ballet. Um, and David Dawson came into his rehearsal, I remember, and I was in his piece. So it was a lot of uh, oh. folks who are still, are still around. Um, and Tom Sapsford, who's a good friend of mine, who also went on to be a choreographer. So I, I was just enthralled by what they were doing. So when I got to the upper school, immediately signed up too. Uh -huh. Wow. And, and was that, did you find like once you signed up that it was something that came really naturally to you or did you find a challenge in it that was interesting? Um, it did come pretty naturally. I mean, I, my, my parents were both English teachers and I'd done a lot of creative workshops and so on when I'd been at, at normal school. I'd, I was lucky that I went to a, a school that was very into the arts by accident. Um, and so we'd done a lot of different things with contemporary companies passing through Cambridge where I grew up. 
and yeah, I'm pretty organized. I, I, I seem to naturally put things together in a kind of narrative thread, which I didn't set out to do deliberately. But now looking back, I can really see that 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 did come very naturally from the get go. Right. Um, and I loved it. I always have loved choreographing on other people probably more than dancing myself if I'm mm. honest oh, yeah. uh, so I, of course I wanted to be a dancer and I was in a couple of pieces that I made at school and actually won the school choreographic competition with a pas de deux that I made for myself and one of the guys um, but really you know even in pas de deux class I can remember just loving standing at the side and watching when people would go wrong and there'd be like some really cool move that would happen uh, if you know someone fell off balance or, or uh-huh. so, yeah. So in, in those early years, um, did you have to kind of manage your dual ambitions of being a dancer and being a choreographer? Did you find it was hard to fi- um, f- find the time to do both? It was it was hard to manage the two things, and I remember I really wanted to join Rombert Dance Company. That was my dream, actually, more than the Royal Ballet. Um, and I had a little audition and Christopher Bruce was director there at the time. And I very stupidly said to him, well, he asked why I wanted to join Rombert. And I said, well, I love the repertoire, but also I felt as, as a young choreographer, it was really a place that I would want to be. And he, I remember him telling me, hmm, you shouldn't be thinking of those things yet. Like spend your time <laughs> dancing. Just uh-huh. <laughs> heartbroken. Um, so, yeah, I think it was people don't expect a 19 year old to already have choreographic ambitions. It's quite unusual. Um, and it was difficult. And as a dancer, my natural leaning or tendency was towards the more contemporary repertoire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has affected really the the trajectory that I've had as a choreographer. You know, if I'd have been a much stronger classical dancer and possibly then went into a company like the Royal Ballet. I think I would have had a really different journey. But as it happened, as a dancer, um, the contracts that I was drawn to and got were in companies with a much more varied repertoire, or at least at that time. Um, mm-hmm. you know, Royal Ballet also do very contemporary work. But it it definitely, you know, one thing affected the other, and it was a balancing act. And it was only when I was, I was 24, and by that point, I had moved on. I, my first job was with the Zurich Ballet, and then mm-hmm. I went to the Lucerne Ballet, which was a 14-dancer company, more contemporary, uh, although we did ballet class every day. And the director was Richard Worlock, who is currently in Basel, um, and he's about to retire. Uh, and he was very kind, because at that point, I got invited to come back to the Royal Ballet to make a piece once a year for three years. Mm-hmm. and. That was an amazing opportunity and, and very unusual. You know, I was still only 21, 22. Right. Um, and he did allow me and gave me time off, which wasn't difficult. I mean, it wasn't easy, rather, within right. the schedule with so few dancers. Um, but he, he made it work. Um, and then, then I think I went to the Bern Ballet for one year and I couldn't choreograph that year. And there wasn't a young choreographer's workshop or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And I had to make the decision... Do I want to really carry on dancing or or do I just simply have to choreograph now? And that's what I felt. Yeah. So I went right. back to London to freelance in order to give choreography the priority. Mm-hmm. Right. So what did that that first year freelancing look like for you? That must have been a little bit of a, a shock because you're at that point used to the consistency of your 
company schedule and, um, you know, obviously a consistent paycheck. Uh, how is freelancing treating you that first year? I mean, I am a very hard worker and I'm very organized. And I think those two qualities really helped. Um, mm. I, you know, I got myself out there. I'm very proactive. I got myself a couple of dancing jobs with different project companies, which was great. You know, it was just the, the right amount. And, right. and I wrote hundreds of letters to different people that could offer me choreographic opportunities and, and got some. And, you know, you right. start off with student ensembles or all sorts of different things I, I mean the right. hard the hardest challenge I had that year um was creating a full-length ballet with a new orchestral score for the London Children's Ballet which was 58 to 14 year olds every Sunday for months wow. <laughs> it wow. was really tough um but you know those sort of things you you learn from them and yeah. it was an opportunity to work with a composer on a full-length narrative piece you know and that that was a big deal Right. right. So it, it, I loved it. I loved the freedom, actually. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so you're saying these narratives, of course, now we can look back at, you know, your your whole canon and see like that. It, that's just what makes you tick, um, you know, taking on some of these like amazing classic literature works and, and making them into dance. But what was the um, what was the first time you kind of experimented with a, uh, a narrative that in particular, maybe one that that people wouldn't expect? You know, you're not doing Cinderella. You're doing Lady Chatterley's Lover, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I ever thought in terms of the classics, actually, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or uh, very rarely. So even at the Royal Ballet School, I choreographed a, a duet with a, a, another female choreographer friend of mine. And we put, we thought, what if Ophelia and Lady Macbeth met? What would that do? <laughs> I love and, that. And we, and we made a duet and, you know, I was Lady Macbeth, she was Ophelia and we choreographed on each other um, mm -hmm. and made that. So I think really from the early days, I was looking for different sorts of narratives. Um, I, I did English A-level actually when I was at the Royal Ballet School and I remember studying a brilliant play by Tom Stoppard called uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstone are Dead. And mm -hmm. Right. He takes the two very minor characters from Hamlet and, you know, writes a whole play around them. And you sort of get little um, scenes of little moments from Hamlet in the background. But primarily he's looking at these um, two tiny characters and, and making them important. And I absolutely love that, you know, and that really opened up worlds for me to see how the possibilities that there are when you take existing narratives, but turn them upside down and back to front. Right. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much... Um you were thinking about the practicality of this, you know, to work on these narrative works can mean a really big budget and a lot of people and new music, like so much can go into that. Is that something that you kind of worried like, oh, is this going to be something that's sustainable for me as I move forward in my career? Or do I kind of have to look at these other like kind of more abstract things? What were you, what was your thought process in terms of that? I think I was very lucky again at the Royal Ballet School to have two choreographic teachers who encouraged me to work with composers. So I really sought young composers out and mm -hmm. worked with them from right at the beginning. Um, mm -hmm. So it didn't occur to me that this was a financial problem at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. And likewise with designers, we did a collaboration every year with the Central St. Martin School of Art and Design in London. So I had designers who were there. Wow. you know, working with me also dramaturgically on, on the pieces that I wanted to do. So I think, you know, that's the great thing about starting early is 
you you haven't kind of learned the hard lessons yet. You just think anything's possible. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Along the way, of course, I realized that it's it is a big deal to to commission music more than anything else. That's that's mm-hmm. the big expense. Um, and sometimes I've worked with arrangements rather than with new scores or entirely right. new scores. Right. Um, but I I think that on the whole, the the way that my career has panned out, by the time I've gotten to the point now where I really do want to commission big scores, people have realized that the value of narrative dance as well. Um, right. There's a sort of payback there. Um, there is an argument to be said for commissioning new score. Yeah. Right. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about um, those times where you haven't had a commission score and you've had to piece something together in order to create the narrative to your liking. What What has that process been like for you? Well, the best ones have been when I've worked with a composer arranger on that. So mm-hmm. uh, often that's been a, a wonderful man called Philip Feeney, who's a composer himself, but has made a lot of dance scores. So we work together on uh, Jane Eyre, Lady Chatterley's Lover, mm-hmm. The Scoots, Snowblind, um, The Cellist. So lots of different works. And usually we begin, I mean, it always starts with the story for me. Mm -hmm. And I'll usually then have the scenario written out, like I'll have developed that already. And Philip and I will identify some key composers um, or perhaps pieces that we feel will sort of anchor the work. So in the case of Ellis, it was about Jacqueline Dupre. Uh, We were obviously looking at her repertoire. Right. Strangely enough, actually, that the obvious piece that that Jackie made, you know, her own was the Elgar's Cello Concerto, and it was almost too obvious for us. So we actually went through <laughs> the whole version of the ballet without that piece in it, which now seems completely mad to me. But <laughs> we did do it, and then I listened to the whole thing, and I my gut just told me, "Oh no, this is a big mistake," and, mm-hmm. and we worked it. Um, sometimes we'll look at composers that are contemporaries of. of the protagonist. So in the case of Jane Eyre, um, we were looking at Fanny Mendelssohn, who was a contemporary of the Brontes and like the Bronte sisters, female and, mm-hmm. and slightly overlooked in, in, in her time. Mm-hmm. Um, and with Snowblind, this was um, written in New England around 1900. We looked at um, a group of composers called the Boston Six and picked a couple of them, Amy Beach and Arthur Foote. And Philip, um, like in the case of Jane Eyre as well, um, orchestrates some of the music. So he took a few oh. piano pieces, which give us beautiful themes and little sections that might be a key part of or something like that. And then he'll right. he'll develop it and seed some of those themes earlier on or develop them later on so that the score feels like a whole thing rather than a sort of playlist. Sure. Um, so those are the best examples. I, d- I have had some other experiences where I couldn't work with someone like that. Um, for example, when I directed the Burn Ballet, I was asked to create something with Baroque music uh, and work with a wonderful orchestra called the Ben Camerata. And I said yes, and I that was this that was the starting point. So I started looking up what happened in Switzerland in the Baroque era and discovered this fascinating story about someone called Anna Goldie, who was the last person to be killed for being a witch in Europe. Um, wow. wasn't a witch, and in 2007, the Swiss government exonerated her, which I found it fascinating. Yeah. Um, so I worked a whole story around this, and and my I selected myself in that case 
um, a whole load of Baroque pieces, Vivaldi and, and others. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that took, you know, I'm always a little bit fearful about um, putting music together in case, you know, I'm not a musician. I have an instinct, um, but I, I'm not trained to you know, connect things musically. Um, but I was really supported by the orchestra and given confidence because they love what I did. And and ultimately that that did teach me actually I should just trust my gut. I do have a good instinct for these yeah. things. It is possible. Right. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the process for you with the music. So in, in the studios. So Michael and I I think we only did right when we were at Miami City Ballet like one piece that had original music. Is that right? Or I'm just remembering that it wasn't done right. when we were rehearsing so we had kind of like a blueprint and then like we really only heard the actual music to like right before mm-hmm. right michael I right you're right because i yeah any of the new works that we did have were things that you know we did Rachmaninoff symphonic dances existing right. score you can go listen to that on you know on the computer at home at night before you come back into work right but, you're right rebecca yeah yeah so I, so i wonder for you like and i'm sure with each composer it's different with each you know if you're just putting things together it's different but have you had some of those moments where like the music's not quite done or is it always like totally finalized before and how much like back and forth is there as you're in the studio um no I've I've been very lucky in that all the experiences I've had with composers have run to schedule Mm -hmm. Uh, and so usually I'll ask a composer to create to a kind of 90 percent finished point by the time I start the creation just because sometimes it's it's good to be able to make some adjustments along the way anyway um, but also that that depends if you're working with orchestra and in particular theatres, they want to anyway start printing orchestral parts months ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. So you have to be fairly prepared. Um, one of the things that I have just got very fixed about for me is that I really have to work with composers who can provide me a digital demo of what the orchestration will sound like. Um, and, you know, some people don't want to do that and they want to just work with a piano score, mm-hmm. but ultimately it just doesn't work for my creative process. And so mm-hmm. that really does influence the people that I will work with, um, which is sometimes the same, but ultimately I think it's the right decision for the way I work. Right, right, right. Yeah. So I- I'm curious now to hear a little bit more about your process of um translating text into dance. I mean, a, a lot of the works that you're doing are these super iconic, like beasts of literature, you know, when, when you talk about, when we think about, um, you know, 19th century story or narrative works, you know, it, it's not, the story is like a framework, but we're not too precious about it. And it's not like of mice and men is just, you know, it's something that every American student has to read because of its greatness in school. So it's like you have this text, the actual text really matters a lot. So um, how do you care for that and then translate it to into dance steps? I mean, there's so many different aspects to a book, right? And in some cases, the language really matters and really infiltrates its way into the choreography for me. Um, so that was certainly the case with a piece like Lady Chatterley's Lover. I mean, I was pretty directly inspired by specific sentences and, and you know, translated those in, into movement, you know, kind of word for word in some little moments. Mm-hmm. Um, in other cases, it's really more about the character and plot. So with Mrs. Robinson, which I've just uh, made the San Francisco Ballet, 
it was really the character of Mrs. Robinson that inspired right. me in the situations that come up in the in the book. And then, you know, in my imagination, I developed her her side of the story a little bit more. But it wasn't that I was going back to the language of Charles Webb in rehearsals. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of Mice and Men, it's a bit of both. I mean, his the characters are fabulous and the way he describes them is so distinct and perfect. So we really did take many of those um, passages and analyze them and discuss them together with the dancers. And my process is very language-based anyway. So mm-hmm. whatever I'm doing, I, I have the scenario, but I also write uh, lists of words for each character. And those words are distillations of all the research that I've done. They might be some words that are taken directly from the book, um, but they could also be words that I, I sort of brought out of my own imagination if I'm trying to describe but very simply the character and the way the character moves and feels. And the first thing that we do with the dancers is create movement phrases that are translations of those words, not really for specific scenes, but just to get a, a language for each character, a way of walking, a way of, you know, a few light motifs, a way of being angry, a way of being happy. I, I really want the dancers to have um, tools to help me in the studio when we come to create the scenes. So they need to know how their character moves. And then when we're putting together specific situations, they can contribute from the, the bank of movement material that we've developed together. Right. And so that, that really does, it, it helps. And it, it is, of course, influenced by the text. And so with George, right. many, I, I'm now not going to be able to quote it off the top of my head, but I can visualize the first page of, of Mice and Men and the description of George and his sharp, quick movements. And, it, it, you know, it, it's off the page. I mean, you can right. give that to a dancer and start working together on it and it will come up with a vocabulary that is really character based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of these works, you know, they're, you know, you, they're iconic and they've been adapted into films and other theater and um, I'm wondering, do you only ever go back to the text or are you ever inspired by like one of the many Jane Eyre films, for instance? Um, do you ever look at that to, for, for a source of inspiration? I, I do usually watch the films, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly with something like The Graduate, of course, the film is a masterpiece. And, right. yeah. and <laughs> we laughed a lot, you know. And, and because we were flipping it, because the film does such an amazing job of, of seeing the story from Benjamin's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were looking at it from Mrs. Robinson's point of view, so it was it was fun to see what what they they did in the film and how we would reverse that. Um, in the case of Mice and Men, it, there's a fabulous film, of course, um, and I don't think we looked at any scenes of that in rehearsals. I'm pretty sure we didn't, but certainly it was inspiring for me to watch it right at the beginning. I think I right. I took a step back from that, also working with Thomas Newman on the score. Um, because I didn't want to, you know, get too pulled into that. I wanted us to really find our way into the story. Uh, with okay. Jane Eyre, I mean, there's loads of films, so you can kind of watch all of them. And um, what's the 2011 one? I've forgotten the director's name. It, that I really loved. Um, yeah. And and in that case, I remember watching a couple of scenes with the dancers to get inspired. But I think we always... It's it's totally fine. You can watch a scene, but because we're translating it into dance, 
you're inevitably going to go quite a long way from that scene. So it's right. really a, a provocation or an inspiration, but it's never going to be a copy. So it's kind of fine. Right, mm-hmm. right. So you mentioned um, that sometimes you've been approached with music that you should, you know, that you need to work with. In the case of of Mice and Men and Joffrey Ballet, how did this commission come about? Did they suggest of Mice and Men, or they were like, "Come on over, do whatever you want"? What was what was <laughs> that like? Ashley, Rita, and I had breakfast in London. Um, I think it might have been when we were preparing Jane Eyre. I don't think I'd yet worked with the company. Um, and we were just chatting about pieces that I would like to do one day. <laughs> and Mice and Men, I studied it at school as well. Um, and it's always been in the back of my mind as one of those pieces I'd love to do. And I was sort of aware, I think I had even suggested it once to Northern Ballet and they'd not really gone for it. It's a, it's such an American story. I had the feeling mm-hmm. that, you know, I'm going to need to do that in America. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um so I mentioned it and immediately Ashley said, that's it. You, you, you have to do that for Joffrey. Um, and I really understand why it's such a perfect fit for the dancers here. It mm-hmm. feels really the right, the right place to be doing it. Right. And, and then the thing with the music with Thomas Newman, we then started, he asked me for musical suggestions and it was actually my agent. Um, we were just chatting. We chat quite frequently. And he said, oh, you know, you, you should look at, think about Thomas Newman. And I was like, that's a crazy idea. Like, we'll never get Thomas Newman. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, but I said it to Ashley, and Joffrey managed to set up a conference call with him and his manager. Um, and at the time, I was in San Francisco, and the call went really well. So I said, well, actually, I could just hop on a plane and come see you at the weekend if you wanted to meet in person. Uh-huh. Uh, and he agreed. So we had this meeting. And we just clicked. And I guess it must have been, I don't know if he'd always wanted to do a ballet or not, but I think, you know, he's such a superstar and has made incredible movies. I think the idea of making a ballet once in his life just appeals. Um, as it happened, it, I mean, it was all supposed to be before the pandemic. And so we've had quite a long time to work together on this now. Um, right. And we became pandemic buddies. He, he wanted mm-hmm. to Zoom every week. We made <laughs> another little section and mm-hmm. fabulous. Right. Did he share it all? Um how the process was differing for him like you must have had to guide it a little bit you know since it was his first ballet very different from scoring film um what was your back and forth like and and was do you think it was a learning process for this giant of the silver screen but a total (laughs) novice for for ballet i i don't i wouldn't want to say if it's a learning process or not (laughs) i think it's been an experience that he won't forget i mean it's it's very different for composers of film because mm. usually they they have visuals to respond to. Right, uh, right, right. And even though you think, oh, it's a visual, of, you know, art form dance, it's right. quite similar, and you're looking on a relatively large canvas. It's an hour length piece, but not to have anything there to respond to, I think, is a big difference for a film composer. Um, right. The, essentially, you know, except for the scenario existing, the composer's the first one to kind of put their toe in the water and that can be quite scary right Um, and I I think there was some really funny meetings that we had when he he really was like Kathy be kind like tell me tell me what you think but be kind (laughs) (laughs) can't imagine someone who's that amazing and successful to be so concerned about um you know sharing their first first drafts Mm -hmm. it was you know he's very sensitive and and lovely for it Uh Um, 
And so we talked a lot. I think language, you know, the fact that I'm so language driven was helpful in that case. Um, he's very specific about the words that he uses to describe each scene. He really wants to get a proper hang on each scene, each character, the plot corner that we're in um, before he starts and asks some very perceptive questions and challenging questions, which is great for me because it, it just meant I was all the more prepared for my part of the process. Right. So, so I'm wondering, as you're talking about these Zoom calls and you're going through the different drafts of the music, you guys are obviously discussing plot. I'm wondering how much you're talking about each scene, um, what's happening, what characters are on stage, and has any of this even come to fruition at this point during the pandemic? Like it was discussed before, were you in the studio at all before, or is this purely like you two working on the music and the narrative during the pandemic before getting in the studio? Much of it was before I'd been in, well, it was certainly before I'd literally been in the studio um, mm -hmm. and it normally would be in, in my process. However, in the case of Mice and Men and the pandemic, we actually used a couple of weeks in um, November 2020, I think it was, when I should have been with Joffrey in person and wasn't. And the dancers were here. So Ashley and I thought, well, let's just try some Zoom rehearsals and see you know, it can only go wrong. I mean, right. it's, <laughs> might as well. If it's terrible, then we just don't use any of it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I ended up doing a whole model box presentation to the entire organization by Zoom and then having these real in depth character discussions with each dancer over Zoom mm -hmm. and even then creating movement. And mm -hmm. they could only be one person in the studio at that time. So one dancer, they'd all swap each day. Um, one person would be in the studio and the other, wow. let's say each character was maybe being um, researched by three or four dancers. The others would all call in from their living rooms. And I thought they were just going to watch in their living rooms, but they were on the floor rolling around and <laughs> really confusing. Yeah. Um, we ended up creating a lot of material that has actually found its way into the piece in the end. Um, so that was amazing. And I was able to share some of those little sketch character sketches with Tom and that really helped him I think right in particular there was one um sketch that we made with Curly's wife that would eventually become a duet but we were, I could only have one person in the studio so it was just Curly's wife and she was kind of imagining talking if you like dance talking to, uh -huh. to George and I was really happy with how it turned out. And and in the end, it's it's literally taken from that Zoom. She has a little solo that we basically made on Zoom um, oh. and um, wrote the music to looking at her on this little Zoom screen, <laughs> which is pretty amazing. That's pretty incredible. Mm. Um, before we wrap up, I want to hear a little bit about um, an exciting new post for you as the director of uh, Zurich Ballet coming up uh, next year. Uh, this must be special because it was where you danced, one of the companies you danced for. Um, but I'm also just wondering, uh, I feel like the choreographer as director model um, isn't as prevalent maybe as it once was. And um, how, you know, you have such a strong vision and voice as a choreographer. How, um, how do you plan to bring that into your position as director? And um, how do you think that will affect the overall vision you have for the company? I think the vision is rooted in in my, me being a choreographer. And, mm -hmm. and that was one of the really enticing aspects to that right. job is that they, 
Ballet Zurich has had a choreographer director for a very long time. I mean, not entirely forever, but you know, the, what I danced there with, under the direction of Bernd Bienert, who was a choreographer. Before that had been Uwe Schultz. After that was Heinz Spurli, mm-hmm. then Christian Spurk, all of whom have been choreographers. Um, and the, the repertoire has always been mixed, but rooted in the, the work of the director. Right. Um, but when I received the invitation, that was very exciting to me because it wasn't, um, it wasn't, oh, we think, you know, you've got a great voice and, and you've got all these management skills which I do (laughs) I have other skills apart from being a choreographer and and I like caring for a group of people and and nurturing an environment that is creative for others as well as myself but I have had an incredible decade of work since I left the Burn Ballet as a director and it wouldn't have been for any company that I'd have given that up to be honest I I love choreographing um but I, I'll be able to continue and to put my work within a larger context, which is really exciting, and to give other people opportunities, which I love doing in Bern, and I'm looking forward to uh, in Zurich. And and it's also just about bringing the group of dancers together that you really feel inspired by. Um, I, I think I will miss aspects of being a guest because, you know, you go to different places and there's always, it's like new box of chocolates like oh wow so many beautiful people to work with right um, but I think there's phases in in my life and career and and I had a wonderful time in Bern which was very de- developmental in terms of my process and where I wanted to take my choreography because I had a group of dancers that I could build something with and then I've had a decade of freelancing it feels the right time to yeah. to be going back to something um more rooted for right. a while um so we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, since you've experienced both, how um, is it different for you to, as being, you know, a guest, seeing dancers that you don't maybe know their names, you've never seen them dance before. How does that um, change your process versus dancers who, you know, so well, and of course that's, that's what will be happening in your new posts is you'll even get to choose them, you know? So how, how does that differ for you? Well, the, the process that I, described just before these were these lists of words and and developing that that really sort of firmed up for me during my period in Bern when I had dancers that I could build that together with um and then it's been something that a, a toolbox that I could take out on the road when I meet new dancers and it's some companies respond quicker than others or some individual dancers respond to that quicker than others and I've got you know, other things that I've picked up along the way that that help perhaps more classically trained dancers um, step into that creative space confidently. And I, I get, you know, I've gotten better at that along the way. And I, I think that many of the people that I've worked with in large ballet companies have been amazed by what the experience has brought them in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how it's going to be in this case in Zurich, what the next thing that I'll learn is. Um, that's the exciting part you know it will it will certainly bring something but yeah. who knows what I wonder too if you've had the chance I know of course when you take over a post like this there's so many elements to what needs to be done and you know and your responsibilities but I wonder if you've put thought uh, yet into how you might continue to foster choreography because of course you got um, those opportunities so young and that was so formative for you so I wonder um, what your thought process might be for that in the future yeah I mean, one of the nice things about uh, 
Zurich is that I'm very familiar with the Swiss dancing. Um, mm -hmm. So actually, you know, I started with the Zurich Ballet. I danced in two other companies in Bern and Luzern. I've been live. I directed the Bern Ballet. I've been living in Switzerland for, gosh, since 2007 in this stint. And actually, in the pandemic, I created with a colleague of mine, Eastern Rustem, a freelance company called Company C. La Ronde. Um, and we just had a premiere last week at a wonderful theatre in Winterthur. We're going to be touring Switzerland in next month. So I really have a quite a 360-degree view on the Swiss dance scene. And one of the things I really care about is breaking down the the sort of barriers between the institutions and the free scene. So I think choreographers benefit so much from exploring movement with people that they don't see every day, you know, what, for a ballet dancer to work with more contemporary dancers or street dancers and vice versa. And that's one of the things that I really hope to do. And sometimes that's really just about individuals, like seeing individuals either in the company or outside the company who would benefit from being connected um, and that's just going to be something that I have to feel as as a director, like who right. who has what potential and how can I help? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the company does have a, a biannual choreographic workshop, which is great. So that there's this framework that will, will continue to exist for developing new work. And it's an opera house with, you know, all the infrastructure that that entails. So they have workshops and sound departments that can do all sorts of things and all of that. Um, I think it's also something about how I work. And interestingly, I was reading, um, I, I can't tell you which article in that very large new book about contemporary ballet, you know, the, the Oxford Guide Handbook of Contemporary Ballet that's mm -hmm. recently published. And I'd love to say which writer wrote this article, but it was about the Stuttgart Ballet. Um, and it was talking about Cranko and why there are so many amazing choreographers that came out of Stuttgart under his leadership. And it was really talking about the way he worked in the studio as a choreographer, which was new to me. I'm not really familiar with how his process went, but it, it rang very familiar when I read about it. And I thought, gosh, that's really, I mean, I have a very open studio. I collaborate closely with everyone in the room and invite the dancers to contribute even if it's you know they're just sitting on the side waiting for their rehearsal I'll throw questions out there and <laughs> I it sounded like that was quite similar to to Cranko's studio mm -hmm. um, mm. and I'd love to think that 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 is true that there is something about a culture a way of working that can be absorbed by the people in the room sort of along the way so that right. it's there's something that will will um, grow because it's being watered. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I would. I hope that that might happen. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it will, and we we can't wait to see um, all the wonderful influence and creativity you're going to bring to Ballet Zurich. But also, firstly, if any of our listeners are in the Chicago area, we hope that they come out and check out of Mice and Men, April 27th through May 8th. And we thank you again, Kathy, for coming on. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 